I've mentioned before that one of the things that gives me hope for this new year is the election of Ellie Savitt as the Washtenaw County Prosecutor. I enjoyed spending some time yesterday afternoon watching Ellie and his chief assistant prosecutor, Victoria Burton Harris, being sworn in and attending a reception celebrating this new day in Washtenaw County. Burton Harris ran as a similarly progressive prosecutor in Wayne County, but she was not successful in that campaign. Still, we're lucky to have a similarly capable, if not even more capable attorney to serve as chief assistant prosecutor. One of the things that she did whenever she spoke yesterday was tie the injustices in our criminal justice system to a 400 year journey of oppression of black and brown bodies and name that she was unapologetic about her support of black liberation. I was also impressed by the parade of older African-American women who in the reception time didn't seem to care one whit that Ellie had managed to get elected, but were definitely there for Victoria. It was an afternoon of hope, and it was a great way to begin 2021. I've sat on Savitt's Racial Equity Working Group this fall, and a part of my work at the University of Michigan will now include managing the dashboard of metrics designed to increase transparency in Washtenaw County's criminal justice system, especially around racial inequities in the system. So there weren't necessarily any epiphanies for me in the promises that Savitt and Burton Harris were making. I knew about and at points have contributed to the policies designed to make good on these promises. I did though have a bit of an unpleasant epiphany at the beginning of the investiture though. After a few comments from Trisha Duckworth, an advocate for sexual abuse survivors who convened the ceremony, a young woman came up to sing. She began with lift every voice and sing, often referred to as the black national anthem, which was great, but then turned to the actual American anthem as Sabbat and Burton Harris and others gathered around them, stood and placed their hands on their hearts and stood at attention. I am the type of Mennonite that is capable of tolerating the national anthem but I don't remove my hat when it's played at the University of Michigan women's basketball games that I love to watch. I often think about sitting through it, and sometimes I do. I believe that Savitt and Burton Harris are more committed to reforming the criminal justice system than I am. But I remembered with the force of an epiphany yesterday that they are doing it for reasons that are deeply committed to a dream of America rather than the dream that I try to dream, the dream of Jesus' beloved community. And so I experienced some dissonance yesterday, knowing that they were about to announce a bunch of policies that I loved, but that right there in that moment, they were showing allegiance to a state and a way of organizing human life that I hold suspect. On one hand, this dissonance is something I'm totally used to. Very few elected officials are pacifists. So I don't expect them to line up with what I believe. 
But I felt like I could just ignore politics, as is the traditional Mennonite and Brethren approach. This wouldn't need to affect me. But for a long time now, I've been convinced that opposing the conservative right in this country is what my faith calls me to do. And that investment in politics is one of the ways that this happens. But recently, I've also started to question the dissonance itself. I will always be a pacifist, but the last few years have been hard on the political exceptionalism common among my type of Mennonites. This exceptionalism holds that the beloved community is one we can actually achieve inside the politics of the church. Sharing and mutual concern can happen without violence. You can't force people to believe in this kind of community. People have to sign up for it on their own accord. But that doesn't mean that this is not a real option for how we could structure society. Almost no one believes this. The idea of community as society is the exception to the rule of a world governed by violence. It is the root of my dissonance when I see someone I respect show allegiance to a violent state. But more and more, I recognize that this opting out of how everyone else does things has a lot in common with Trumpism, which is a very different form of opting out of how everyone does things, but a form nonetheless. I wonder just how different the sedition of the growing group of Republican senators and representatives ready to oppose the will of the electors is from the sedition that I offer in absenting myself from the state's violence. Ellie Savitt is ready to orchestrate the state's threat of violence. I'm excited that it's him rather than someone else. And I'm happy to keep track of how he is doing it. Is that enough? The story of the Magi lies behind these reflections. My original plan had been to talk about the story and how it resists our attempts to domesticate God's good news. I had been thinking that the story of the wise men on camels can't be located on American soil, at least with camels. Almost all of the camels that live today are domesticated. They don't make any sense in North America and they keep the story located in the near or far east, or Australia, as it turns out. There's lots of camels in Australia somehow. Camels are great survivors. The few wild camels that live in Mongolia are the only mammals that can drink salt water and derive hydration. I like the reading of the story of the Magi that has them bring a surprising set of gifts from an unexpected place. I like the story of companions as stalwart and persistent as camels, carrying people through hardships. But as I started to look more carefully at this story and how it's been told throughout history, I started to have some second guesses. In Matthew, as Joe read it for us, we have very little. There are three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh brought by Magi who followed the star from the east. 
we can make a compelling argument that these are Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest continually practiced religions, and it's still active today in Iraq and Iran. The observation of the stars was an important part of these Magi's work. Throughout the Bible, there is an opposition of the Jewish God who reveals God's self through the word to other gods who reveal themselves through the stars, the moon, or other forms of magic. Having these priests honor Jesus and having them thwart Herod, the emperor's plans, gives authenticity to both Jesus as an important religious figure and sets up a unity of religious or wise opposition to state power. But that's all there is in Matthew. The camels and the kings come from the Isaiah passage that we read today. When we think of three kings, we are extrapolating from the three gifts. When we think of camels, we are interpolating from Isaiah, and probably a little clumsily, because it's likely the case that kings, who could choose what kind of animal they wanted to ride, would have ridden on the much more comfortable horses. Throughout Christian tradition, post-biblical writers have found this a compelling and convenient story to expand. So later, we receive names for the three kings, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. They get ages. They're 20, 40, and 60. And locations, Europe, Asia, and Africa. The three kings become representative of all of humanity. Well, all male humanity, at least. They are depicted as white in writing up until the 8th century and in art into the 13th century. At first, some black attendants are added to Melchior's retinue, and then he himself becomes black more and more frequently into the 14th century and beyond. Part of this is because Europe was becoming at least a bit more diverse at this time, as black Africans increasingly lived there or were at least known about. But part of it was also because the African slave trade had begun in earnest, depicting one of the three kings as black, and usually the youngest king, who was often guided by older kings, served the purposes of a ruling elite in Europe who also wanted the whole world to bow down to them. Melchior was not just depicted as black, but also in increasingly exotic ways, with flam flamboyant clothes, even riding on an elephant. The larger context of Isaiah 60 is also consumed with the idea that other people should bow down to us. Written after the Israelites returned to the promised land, freed from Babylon by the benevolent Persian emperor Cyrus, Isaiah here tells the story of the world bowing down to Israel's God with streams of camels extending as far as the eye can see. Rather than criticizing the political machinations that exiled Israel in the first place, or bemoaning the political machinations that led to their return from exile, here Isaiah celebrates the idea of the political machinations, this time directing them towards the worship of God. 
Reading Isaiah 60 feels like watching Ellie Sabat hold his hand over his heart while the American national anthem plays. Everything else has been reformed, returned, realigned, reappropriated and readjusted. But the dream is still the dream of empire, bombs bursting in air, our flag still being there. Do we have another option? The traditional Mennonite and Brethren answer is valuable here. Yes, we want to say, we have that option. It might not be the option for every problem, but we know how to resist empire. We don't know how to rule, but we know how to resist ruling. I want to take a break and just recognize that I'm being unreasonably critical here. Um, Ellie Sabat, um, holding his hand on the heart, is not the worst thing in the world. Um, and I, I just want to kind of flag that kind of criticism um, for a moment, um, because I think it's real. The kind of purity that it takes to satisfy a preacher's attention in a sermon is a difficult purity indeed. And um, I want to recognize that that purity is not something that I'm arguing for us to strive for. But what are our options? Is it enough to be humble about what we know and open to what we don't? I think that it is possible to read the Magi this way, to read their visit as priests willing to investigate what they don't know, eager enough to do so that they'll consult with Herod to get the right instructions but wise enough that they leave without telling him that they've been successful. How do we think about the history of the Magi without making their belief less than our own? We can celebrate their journey without needing them to convert to our religion. We can celebrate their difference without needing it to support our sovereignty. We can celebrate their ingenuity without reducing it to a testament of our God's power. This sermon is poised as the beginning in a series of reflections on reconciliation. It feels difficult to do that on January the 3rd, knowing that January the 5th with the Senate runoffs in Georgia is just two days away. January 6th with the Congressional Acceptance of the Electoral College, just three days away on January 6th. It's going to be another big week of furthering division. Elected leaders are going to openly argue in favor of sedition. The election in Georgia is going to be contested regardless of the outcome. We will continue to careen towards January 20th, anxious about what might happen. The 12 days of Christmas this year are also about political division and the inevitable spike in the pandemic from people who held and continue to hold unsafe gatherings. I don't know if these themes are about reconciliation or not, but one thing that I like about reconciliation is that it's a broader topic than some we could choose to engage after everything that has happened to us as a church a community, a city, a county, and a country in 2020. 
part of reconciliation is about both retelling and relearning our history and the stories that animate us and those around us, looking to find the truth of where we've come from, seeking to find some common approach that moves us forward together. My hope is that reconciliation comes towards us as an epiphany in this new year. I hope that we will be surprised by new ways of getting along with people that we agree with and people we don't agree with. We need a huge amount of healing in our society and political dialogue, and I hope we find it. I also hope that we can all be humble as we move forward, not following a star perhaps, but something else that we might be surprised by. I hope we have companions as stalwart and persistent as camels to carry us through. <laughs>